I hope you're wearing pants. Welcome aboard the flight attendant podcast. The seatbelt sign is on. It's going to be a rough ride. Welcome to the Flight Attendant Podcast. My name is B, and I'm here with Uncle Jesse. And we're back this week to talk about stuff and things. <laughs> what have you been up to? Um, nothing, actually. Working with you. Uh huh. We're working together. We're working together this month. This whole entire month. It's kind yeah. of exciting. Yeah. You're in the front, I'm in the back. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're up there with your new best friend. Yeah, my new BFF. Uh-huh. Nah. <laughs> Don't even. Don't even. Okay, fine. Um, so we're gonna go with just some news. What do you have for me? So um I was looking into some of the news and actually uh very interesting news about Vietnam. Hmm. They're moving forward in allowing the Three, uh, 737 MAX uh, operations. So the Civil Aviation Authority of Vietnam, also known as the CAAV, is issuing recommendations to Vietnam National Traffic Safety Committee to allow the 737 MAX into the country's airspace. So they're going back? They're going back. And as we know, the MAX uh, was grounded worldwide in around 2019. So it's been a bad year for couple of years. A couple, yeah. For, uh, for Boeing. Boeing. So consequences of those two deadly crashes. Vietnam could be paving the way for the countries in, in Asia, but they still have, they, they're debating whether they're going to wait until Russia, Australia, and China completely uh, on ground at the 737s. So the decision is still not quite, you know, finalized. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's uh, no Vietnamese um carrier operating the 737 MAX. However, the low-cost airline Vietjet has an order of 200 MAXs with Boeing. So that will be a good... Sorry. <laughs> Jim is watching the video from last oh. night. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyway, sorry. I, I'm sorry. Like, I looked over and he was laughing. Uh Sorry, keep going. So, Vietjet has an order of about 200 maxes with Boeing. So, that's actually... That's a big order. That's a big order. Yeah. So, it would be good for Boeing to try to come back. Would you fly in a max? Oh, man. That's a difficult one. I I think I would give it a a chance. Yeah. I I don't think we're going to open that quickly. No. I I I mean, yeah, it's been a while. Hopefully, they have worked out the kinks and not just... Yeah. Put a band-aid over, you know, the airplane duct tape. Yeah, I was going to say. So I have some silly news for you, kind of, Ooh. but not really. So there's <laughs> there's a man that peed on a seat, hit a flight attendant on a Denver-bound plane after refusing to wear a mask. Oh, Lordy. <laughs> A Canyon City man struck a flight attendant and urinated on a seat on a Denver-bound Alaska Airlines flight after refusing to wear a face mask 
according to the affidavit, the arrest affidavit. Um, Landon Perry Greer, he's 24, and is charged with interfering with flight crew. If convicted, he faces up to 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Good. Yeah. And then it's according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Colorado, the incident took plane on Alaska Airlines flight 1474 from Seattle to Denver on March 9th, which, which was just like a few days ago. Yeah. I was still on my trip. Yeah. I have. Uh, okay. What, what's up? What? order did this take place was this a situation where he needed to go but they were like no you can't get out of your seat <laughs> get out of my seat and then <laughs> things happened or was this like a move of defiance where he's like fine i'll stay in my seat <laughs> <laughs> okay so actually it's a really good question jim so the airline staff asked greer to wear a face covering Eight to ten times. Have you done that before? Ask. No, that's that's way past my limit. Yeah, as required by the company. So then Greer additionally ignored the flight attendant, but then struck her arm. That was from like that was the statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And then later, two other flight attendants responded to a call button that had been pressed by a passenger who reported that Greer was urinating in his seat oh. area. <laughs> Uh, so then the, one of the flight attendants saw Greer peeing and asked him to sit down. And then according to the affidavit, the flight attendant then observed, I'm sorry, this is a quote, observed passenger Greer seated in his seat with his penis out of his pants and told him to, and she told him to put his penis back in his pants. He responded, I have to pee. So (laughs) that's a bit of an awkward conversation. Or, or Uncle Josie, feel free to answer this. How would you handle a situation like that where somebody's literally standing there with their junk out, just letting it go? Well, that's public indecency right there. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You get slapped, peed on, and basically spit on. Right. Sounds like a good night to me. <laughs> <laughs> So then the passengers also reported that Greer urinated on a paper bag that she was carrying. So not only did he pee in his area, but he peed in that particular passenger's paper bag. Then um, passengers seated near him were reseated and the captain was alerted to the issue. That is just not okay. Right. Again. It depends on who you ask. <laughs> how, how would you, as a flight attendant, either one of you, deal with that situation? Like, how do you approach that? How do you handle that when they're defiant and say, no, I'm going to do it anyway? Well, I mean, as somebody that has had to handcuff somebody on the plane, this is not. Yeah, I, w- I would have like, okay, at that point. Like, it, it, like it, um, it doesn't say where. On the flight. Where on the flight, yeah. So. What stage. So that the flight attendant stated passenger Greer's actions delayed her preparation for the aircraft. So this is while boarding, it sounds like. Oh, wait, no, sorry. For the delayed preparation of the aircraft for cabin landing for approximately 10 minutes, endangering the safety of passengers. So this is towards the end of the flight. And so then, meanwhile, the captain and the first officer were dealing with an unrelated mechanical issue and preparing to make an emergency landing at Denver International Airport. And this is like stuff that we actually deal with all the time. I had uh, a medical emergency. And then while I was, I had my medical emergency, like somebody was accosting my flight attendants 
for something else. So no, so when we got to the gate, we had EMTs, we had police. (laughs) And so the EMTs came first for the medical and then the police came in for the unruly passenger. (laughs) It was just like a crazy night. The captain had to walk us out to like to our cars, basically. That's insane. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, at that point, well, then again, it's if you are at that stage of landing and approaching, there's so much you can do. Right. At that point, I, I, I would try to definitely handcuff that person. But at what point, you know, like you have to stop everything you're doing. To make sure that the security of the rest of, right. the, of the aircraft is secure. Exactly. To land it. And especially, I think, do you have a, do you have a question, Jim? I, I do. I, I guess I, I don't want to ask you about specific procedures because I, I wouldn't want to, like, have you be with somebody who's listening or any other flight attendant be listening, uh, be dealing with somebody who's happened to have listened to this podcast and they go, oh, they're going to do that. And then something occurs. But I am curious, like, what goes through your head when you're in a situation and obviously be you've been in this situation when you have to restrain somebody, do you go into like police officer mode? Like I'm just going to handle this and what goes through your head? So in a way, yes, we, we like not into police form, but like we have to be situationally aware throughout the whole entire flight or the entire time we're on duty. And, you know, when people are boarding, we look for our, uh, ABAs, which are able-bodied assistants. And then usually ever since 9-11 happened, a lot more people are prone to like assist if there's a situation that arises. So when I had to restrain that one passenger a while back, people like immediately jumped up and they were like helping us restrain this passenger. And that's usually what end up, ends up happening. We don't even have to hold the person down. Somebody else will hold them for us. I'm yeah, I think after 9-11, I think after 9-11, people's minds have changed where they don't want that situation to repeat. So I think, um, and like B said, they people jumped in into it, uh, helping. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that people are not going to be so quick to jump up and help when <laughs> things are flying around in the air. <laughs> true, this is true. But I mean, but, you know, like some people are used to that because they're nurses or doctors or, you know, correctional officers. So they deal with some of this stuff. And, you know, some people are parents. Uh, So then while all of this is going on, the captain and the first officer were dealing with uh, the unrelated mechanical issue. And then the captain stated that the passenger disruption occurred during a high workload environment while they were descending over the mountains in turbulent conditions. The disruption caused the pilot crew to divert attention from their emergency landing preparation. So a lot of people, you know, when we're getting ready, the cabin ready f- for landing, it's usually done at 10,000 feet. And that gives us about maybe five minutes tops to get the cabin ready for landing. Anything over or more than that, we have to call. And, we, and the thing is, it's like we can't call the flight crew at that point, the flight deck, because they're doing their preparations for landing and we don't know what they're doing. So if we have a disruption in the back, unless it's a real emergency, we shouldn't be calling. And when something like this happens, we have like, we have to call them and, and flying into Denver is already turbulent. turbulent, Yeah. Yeah. So then Greer told investigators he was returning to Colorado after working at a gold mine in Alaska. 
Before leaving Alaska, he had one beer. When connecting in Seattle, he had three to four additional beers and a couple of couple of shots before boarding the plane to Denver, according. <laughs> so then he also reportedly took an over-the-counter pain reliever because he had body aches from working. So he he said that he fell asleep on the plane and awoke to being yelled by a flight by the flight attendants who told him he was peeing. He stated he had no recollection of hitting the flight attendant and it didn't know if he was peeing. <laughs> so, so the Roseanne defense, essentially. Exactly. I don't know what happened. So, uh, so now, so this brings us to, so like, that's the end of that's, that's, that's it pretty much. It, so it's, it's, it's an ongoing. And make one more comment on that. That's gotta be instant. No fly. So, yeah, it, I, well, the thing is, you would think that it's an instant no fly, but because it happened in, in, in the air, it's no longer Colorado or Seattle. It's the FBI. So when we, yeah, so when we land, the, the police of the city where we land or the state or whoever, they come to the plane and they take person, but because it happened in the air, it becomes a federal investigation. So the FBI is now involved in this. So it was all a dream. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the and I so I get it. People want to drink when they're going on vacation, when they're coming home because they're traveling, whatever. They're nervous. They take a pill because their body hurts. Just don't mix your drugs and your drinks. Your legal drugs and drinks. When you're talking about that kind of volume, like, okay, one beer, fine. A couple of more beers, fine. But we're now talking about this guy's five beers in, a couple of shots in, or a few shots, however many was was imbibed, and then took pills on top of it. You're, you're asking for a problem. Nobody should be doing that before you get on a flight. I understand people don't want to sit there and be uncomfortable in the seat. They want to sleep, but it makes no sense to not only endanger your safety, but the safety of everybody there, the flight crew. And that's exactly what you're doing. Even if you're just causing a public nuisance, you're endangering everybody's safety and that should never be done. And this is why people should understand that we don't want, like, it's not that we don't want you drunk in the plane. It's like the consequences, the, like the, the dangers that come, come in. And that's why it's, you're not allowed to board a plane when you're uh, intoxicated. Um, when you are when we are up in the air, we get dehydrated faster. Mm -hmm. So one drink becomes three. Right. And just it's a lot of stuff that people don't get. It's not we don't do a lot of these things because we don't want you to do a lot of these things. It's just because you honestly your body can't handle it. It's completely different in the air. Yeah, and people think that we're just giving them a hard time. It's not that. It's just there's those situations. Right. Like you lose control up in the air faster than, yeah. than consciousness i've been up hiking in the mountains with somebody before who was just drinking a bunch of alcohol because it was a big party because we were out there with a bunch of friends and after a day of doing that he passes out after a day of hiking around up in the mountains because you know we're up at seven eight thousand nine thousand feet of elevation and uh, we're back at the campsite and he passes out his head goes right down on the pavement and we had to take him to the hospital. So never a good idea. People no. should always be aware of the fact that when you are at a higher elevation, you're dealing with a much thinner level of oxygen, even with the pressurized air going through the plane. 
Yeah, well, because even then the air, the cabin is pressurized at 8,000 feet. So it's not like you're at, you know, sea level. You're, you know, at 8,000 feet. Which is where we were. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like just like as a rule, you shouldn't drink and do an activity that you've never done before. Right. Flying or otherwise. Right. Like just if you haven't hiked in like two, three years, maybe just don't drink. I want to go on a hike. Yeah. Let's go to Scotland. When they open. I highly recommend Yosemite, which is where we were at the time. Interesting. I was looking into Yosemite the other day. I'll take a trip. I would like to go to Zion, too. To where? Zion. Zion? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In Utah. Okay. Let's, let's plan some stuff. Okay. So we're going to go into our topic today. Very exciting. So what's the one thing that is like drives you crazy? Or not like, I don't want to say the one thing because a lot of stuff drives us crazy on the plane but i think that for me one of like my biggest pet peeves is when we land on like when we land and you hear (laughs) (laughs) um you know the seatbelts yeah there's some some sounds on the plane that we just hear them we recognize them without even looking we're just continuing working i'm like yeah i heard that already and is actually the sound of seatbelts. Even though you'd like tell them as soon as we land, please remain seated with your seatbelt securely fastened until we have reached the gate. Nope, you hear like, that do you, clicking. Do you, do you take off your seatbelt when you're in traffic or like when you're, unless you're my cousin, like you don't take off your seatbelt as you're driving down your street. You take it off when you park your car right. and you turn your car off, right? Right. Okay, so... The story of history of seatbelts. So, although a standard in today's vehicles, seatbelts are a relatively new invention. So, first, they were designed by Edward Calgar around the mid 1800s. Seatbelts were only for the occasional use of by people like painters or firemen just needed a lift or lower from high locations. But in 1911, pilot Benjamin Full, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that. Fully or Fulois? Fulois. If you read it in French. (laughs) So Fulois desired a device for his aircraft that will hold him firmly in in his seat. Uh, He enlisted a local saddle shop to design a seatbelt for him. It was a huge hit, but took almost 20 years before seatbelts were common in the United States aircraft. By World War II, however, every U.S. military plane was equipped with a seatbelt. It wasn't until the early 50s before the idea of seatbelts in automobiles was pursued by Dr. C. Hunter Sheldon, a neurologist by trade, was growing wary of the increased number of head injuries presented in the emergency room after automobile accidents. So he wrote an article in November 1955, edition of the Journal of American Medical Association, introducing a model for retractable seatbelts and proposed the idea of roll bars door locks and airbags to help prevent injuries from accidents during the same year. The automobile industry leader, Ford, began offering seatbelts as an option to car buy. So that goes back to what we were talking, like yeah. an airplane is when we are on the on the taxiway, it, it's a vehicle. So right. you can suffer from head injuries. And the it, thing is, it's like, you know, if you're an adult and you don't want to wear your seatbelt, you've been told... Fine. You've been told you know the consequences of you not wearing your seatbelt. 
But when parents take off their seatbelts and they allow their kids to take off their seatbelts, it's like now you're not aware of or like you are aware that your your children aren't safe. I want to use an example in Orlando. Oh, you had that uh, that taxiway yeah. way where there's the alligator. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there's like three of them. Yeah. We call them the alligators because every time we go through that taxiway, there's about three big bumps where everybody is jumping out of the seat. No, I just meant like the actual alligators that come into the taxiway, into the runways where we have to like literally stop the plane. But the bumps too. Yeah. And we call them the alligators too because we just hit the alligator. <laughs> yeah. So like, and you know, because you don't see, I mean, obviously, Alligators aren't walking that fast, but pilots are like, is that a thing? Or is that like an alligator and have to like stop the plane? And oh, yeah, if yeah. you're not wearing your seatbelt and you just hit the brakes, yep. there you go. You're going to hit your head. Yeah. But that section that has three bumps, yeah, where three bumps, we, yeah. we call it the, the three alligators, because yeah. we have to go through those and those just the, the way the runway is built. And those humps are, and if you are in the back of the plane, you're going to feel it three times even for, like harder. More, yeah. And even me with the, with the, my harness, because mm -hmm. we have harnesses instead of the regular seatbelt, I'm jumping out of my seat. Right. And people are holding their kids up in the air. Oh, yeah, we landed. Yeah. <laughs> or like when they pass them across, across the, the aisle. And like your child's going to end up driving the plane. Right, exactly. <laughs> this right. happens enough that. It's a thing. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You would think, given how slowly an alligator tends to walk unless it's after prey, it would notice the planes coming in for landing. But, you know, who am I? In Orlando, it's the alligator's airport, okay? It's not ours. Well, and you know what? It's funny because Orlando, I think, is one of the only airports that doesn't have the fence around the airport because of the alligators and the thing, you know? In San Juan, we had the iguana issues. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of alligators, we have iguana also on the runway. Yeah, but those are much smaller. And they're faster, way faster. True. So did you know that the type of seatbelt that we have on the plane has a name? Oh, no. It is called the lift lever buckle. Okay, well, that makes sense. And then it was already old-fashioned by 1972. So those were the kind of seatbelts that were actually used on cars as well as airplanes. So by the early 1970s, they had widely replaced what we call the push-button buckles. So like the ones that we have, you know, like the ones that we have now. Yeah, yeah. And then also by this time, some car makers, especially luxury or more experimental car makers, uh, like Swedish car makers, they were playing around with what it's called a three-point harness, which is what we have. What we have. Yeah. So like the push button is, you remember the ones that you had like the button the, on the front? Like yeah, the square, yeah. The little square yeah, with the red button. button the, yeah, yeah. yeah, that one. And then there are a few reasons why the lift lever lap seatbelt vanished from cars, but not from airplanes. For one thing, the shoulder harness in a car is attached to the car's frame, which is a very sturdy part of the car. And in an airplane, it would have to be attached to the wall or the bulkhead, which is a lot less sturdy because, you know, like they're just kind of yeah drilling. that was my <laughs> <laughs> so you could attach it to the seat but you'd have to reinforce the seat which increases the weight which is what we don't want are you laughing at us jim sorry have you ever seen that Chappelle show where they've got the the gangs and the sign their gang sound 
<laughs> so the buckle itself has the benefit of being fairly secure and it's hard to unlock accidentally because you know like kids are playing with it yeah even when you pull it up unless you actually pull it apart it doesn't right. doesn't come apart so like kids are like clicking the thing clicking things. <laughs> clicking things. but they are also really easy to unbuckle in an emergency right have you to just talk it out quickly about emergency do you watch 911 no, but I watched their most recent episode. What I haven't seen with the that. flight attendant. No, I haven't seen that one yet. But there was one, one of the first episodes. They they went to like a like a cra- uh, like a airplane crash, and as they were getting the people off in one of the, I think it was in first class, the seatbelt had actually cut the person in half. Like they had because they weren't wearing it properly. So that's is why, like, we tell people because they had it across his his um, his abdomen. like abdomen instead of his oh. hips, and that's why it's important to wear your seatbelt across your hips because otherwise it could like it's. I mean, you're th- you're talking about a plane is flying over 500 miles yeah. per hour, right? In a crash, you crash. It's gonna catapult you into the oh, pilot, yeah. and if you're not wearing it properly, if it's twisted, then it's gonna cut something. Yeah. It's a thick piece of fabric. Whereas if it's across your hip, your skeletal frame is going to be a part of it. It's going to Yeah. Thank you. So the car style push button buckle, which is typically mounted on the hip, could open on impact if something bangs against the button. And given in the meager room in economy class, nobody wants to be digging around between the seats to find the buckle in a crash situation. So that's why we still have the one that goes across with, you know, the lift lever push or whatever. So the lift, the lift lever lap belts remain basically unchanged for decades, aside from a shift in the material of the strap itself to for it to be less stretchy. Because I feel like that would also add to the safetyness of it. Yeah. Because the more you you know, the more you put it on, or like the more people use it, the stretchier it'll be. Yeah. So that's what makes them <laughs> deliciously cheap for notoriously budget conscious airlines. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a quote. I suspect that the silly antiquated seatbelts we still use as passengers are accepted because they are FAA certified to meet re- minimum safety requirements in a crash. They are light and cheap. <laughs> Just how I like it. Just how you like it, light and cheap. <laughs> so airplane safety is not like automobile safety because airplanes are not like cars, as we were talking about earlier. Okay. <laughs> the primary goal of an aircraft seatbelt is not to save your life if the plane crashes in the unlikely event. There is not much in the way of conventional safety gear that would help you. So you can survive a car crash in which the car is totaled. Your chances of survival in equivalent to a plane crash are significantly less rosy. So what I'm gathering here is that if you roll your car or you're in a total accident you have the seatbelt on you could easily release it but in a plane it would be easier for you to get out because you don't have as much stuff around around you and then as we all know a lot of people don't die on impact they die from not being able to evacuate the aircraft because they're not following instructions right which what happens with that russian flight that was all over the news right exactly so aircraft 
safety belts are designed to keep passengers in their seats during minor and more common events like turbulence or collisions on the runway. In those instances, what you really don't want to be is unsecured in an outrageously fast moving vehicle, free to bang your delicate meat body into wall ceilings, chairs, and other people. <laughs> My meat body. <laughs> That's some Lady Gaga fashion right there. Another primary difference is the way that it's the way airplanes move compared to cars. Car accidents typically involve forward or backwards or sideways motions because cars generally stay on the ground. You didn't get that. Did you get that flying car I sent you the other day? The what? The flying car? No. You didn't get it yet? No. Jim, you got my my flying car that I sent you, right? I did not get a flying car, although I highly recommend you get on YouTube and search for the flying car, Kevin Smith. <laughs> Kevin Smith. <laughs> I was kidding. I did not send you a flying car. I was just so confused. I'm like, what is happening? That's my best friend, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I thought we were here eye to eye, mind to mind. We are. But we're not. But we're not. So with that risk, you want the shoulder belt. And it'll stop your entire upper body from bouncing around due to sudden acceleration or deceleration. But in a plane, it's more likely that you want to protect from up and down movement as with turbulence, as a shoulder belt doesn't do much good for them. But I do feel a lot more safe in my full body heart, or not, yeah. you know, like my shoulder and hip harness on my jump seat than I would in a seat. I think I I think we had the added security because we are the ones that are going to take everyone out in an emergency. Right. So I think the added security for us is in play. Well, also our jump seats. Our jump seats are, are different. different. Yeah, they're different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so because of the goal of an airplane seatbelt is different than that of the car seatbelt, it's permitted to be different. So the metric you have to know here is called pitch for those of you listening at home i'm talking with my hands right now which is the distance between your seat and the seat in front of you <laughs> or the wall in front of you or the wall next to you or whatever is around you don't you always talk with your hands though i know but they don't know that i'm like doing air quotes and like moving my fingers so the FAA figures out safety by placing a crush test dummy in an accelerometer with an accelerometer in its head in a say in a seat and then crashing it. So like the same way that they do with the car, the, the car test crashes, te test crash dummies. Yeah. Put them in a seat. Whoosh. That'd be fun to see like live in person. So then the amount of the speed of the dummy's head gets up up to before smashing into something that determines what kind of seat harness or safety harness you need. So I guess they've done enough tests to say that the the lift lever belt is what is necessary. Yeah, I mean you have to have enough data also, and crashing people is not acceptable. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then again, crashes at least airplane crashes don't happen that yeah, often. Exactly. In order to do you know how many times an airplane crash? One. <laughs> <laughs> so the more speed. The more protection you need, more speed is more danger. Yeah. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this, if this is confusing to you, you can try banging your head slowly into a wall and then very, very quickly into a wall. I'll be right back. 
when you regain consciousness, 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 sure, you'll understand how all this works. We're going to take a break. (laughs) Just kidding around taking a break. (laughs) When I conduct an experiment. (laughs) So the more pitch between your noggin and the obstacle around you, the more room you have to accelerate. And thus, the faster your fragile brain case will smash. Vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom. I was just going to say. be a bit of an emphasis on how fragile we are. I, I was very entertained by your fragile meat body. <laughs> That's what I'm going to start calling it. This is my fragile meat body right here. <laughs> so the FAA's regulation means that the more room you have, the more serious your restraints needs to be. So that's why some seats have that inflatable seatbelt in front, like in it. Yeah, I was like wondering, like uh, one of that was going to be one of my questions. Like, at, at what point the inflatable seatbelt comes in into role? Good question, because I have an answer for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so it says that um, in an economy seat, the only thing you can really hit is the smooth seat back in front of you. <laughs> and it's also about nine inches away from your face, which doesn't give you much room to accelerate and thus decreases the restraint needs. In first class, you have more room and more danger. So in the few planes to have instituted three-point harness, like in cars, they're in first or business class, also replacing the seatbelt is expensive. So I guess more than nine inches. I was not going to ask, is that nine inches? <laughs> so... You know how people, when they're like, but there's somebody right next to me. I thought you were giving us six, you were social distancing us. Somebody is literally nine inches away from you in front and in the back. Where is my six feet? Nowhere. Exactly. Even if we leave the middle seat open, there's- You still have somebody in front of you, somebody behind you. And it's all measured into nine inches. (laughs) (laughs) You were thinking about flying. So, so for the pilot and crew, there needs to be even there. The needs are even more intense. The pilot has a lot of room to move around and also a whole lot of pointy things to smash into in the event of a crash or disturbance. So the pilots usually have a five point harness, similar to what you would see in the race cars cockpit and the same with smaller planes. Shoulder harness have been required for all passengers in small planes since 1986. That's when I was born. I don't know. We won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> and though pilots sometimes scoff on how important they can be. With that said, the three-point harness is not less safe than a lap seatbelt in economy. A lap belt is simply sufficient according to current FAA regulations. There is, according to some interviews with injury research specialists, very little data on how shoulder harness and other restraints in general would affect the safety of an airplane for passengers. And without data pushing the airlines to invest in different harnesses, they're perfectly content to follow the letter of the law. And it's very true. Unless it's regulated, airlines will not change their current policies or like their safety practices, you know, like, and it's, and it's really weird because for me, it's as an industry, if I see that 
something happened on a different airline that caused an emergency situation or like a crash, I would take those findings and kind of put them into my airline. Right. But airlines aren't like that. They're like, oh, well, that happened over there. It's not going to happen here. So we're not going to change it until it happens to us. Interesting. I have a question. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, a lot of the airlines use the cheapest solution when it comes to a lap belt. Is that the same for first class? Do they do they go for the cheapest solution possible? Or I know the seats are obviously nicer than what you get in the rest of the plane. Is the safety precautions maybe of a higher quality, or is it the same where they go for like the least cost? Well, like I was. I was just mentioning, I think it just depends on whether a certain situation has happened on that certain airline for them to upgrade to more safety, you know, because if, if they think they go by, like, if it isn't broken, why change it? Right. So if it happened to me, Uncle Jay is going to be like, well, it hasn't happened to me. So I'm still good. So I'm still good. Yeah. But I feel like it should be like, oh, you know what? It happened over there. It could very well happen here. And I think it just goes back to money. Less or more cost-effective, we're not going to say cheap, more cost-effective products will get you the same amount of revenue, which will, like, the same amount of revenue as other airlines, which will increase your market, you know, like, your revenue incoming. That's interesting because it's, uh, yeah, I don't know how I would feel if it happens over there and i know that the same system is what we have or what we are using i don't know how what i feel about it yeah i'll be concerned a little bit i would be too um so then back in 1993 an editor circular from the faa made a strong argument for installing a three-point shoulder harness just like in cars and they quoted an accident experience has provided substantial evidence that use of a shoulder harness in conjunction with a safety belt can reduce serious injuries to the head, neck, and upper torso of aircraft occupants and has the potential to reduce fatalities of occupants involved in an otherwise survivable accident. And even then, the FAA did not seem to have much confidence in the cooperation of the airlines. Well, and then, like I said, like you said, it right, the airlines had like a pushback to even just add seatbelts to the planes when airlines first went commercial. Yeah. So, you know, like they just, airlines are, I feel like, I think now are more safety conscious, but before they were more like revenue customer service. I mean, I, me coming from Puerto Rico, we, we, there is a story about when Puerto Ricans started migrating to the United States in the, in the 40s and 50s, they have folding chairs on the plane. Oh, really? They were not attached to anything. Oh, have you seen that? Uh, it was a Carol Burnett episode <laughs> where they had the the, uh, the thrifty like side in the back. Have you seen it, Jim? No, no. it's funny. So it's uh, it, it's kind of like uh, the no frills the no frills airline kind of oh, and it was like literally or not frills zone because they had like their regular cabin and then like right behind it they had a rope for a seatbelt. they like the wind was oh, <laughs> it's hilarious i will we'll have to post the little clip on instagram <laughs> on our instagram so you can see it it's hilarious 
So the air, the aircraft industry has made minor steps towards upgrading the system and instituting belts that have actually little airbags that we were talking about them. But the venerable lift lever lab born seatbelt costs about $50 each and passes the FAA requirements. So they remain in our seats. Isn't that crazy? $50. That is crazy. That's it. I'll post the actual article. It's from Atlas of Scura, and you guys can read it if you guys want to. Yeah, that does a lot of information. It's really good information because yeah. you, I didn't know a, a lot, including the name of the seatbelt. Me either. That was interesting to know. Yeah, very interesting reading. Yeah. So any thoughts, comments, concerns? Wear your seatbelts. Yeah. I don't want to hear any clicky clicky. You know, when I, <laughs> whenever I like land and I'm, and I'm sitting in the front, I'm like, or, you know, anywhere I'm sitting. I'm like, you know, we can't move. We've heard some seatbelts and the plane won't move until. That's another thing that people uh, people don't don't know or don't believe that you take your seatbelt, you get up while we are um, on a taxi. The pilots have to stop the plane. Yeah, they do. They have to stop the plane and they can't sit down until or they can't move until everybody's seated. Yeah. And it's, it's the thing is, it's like when I make my pre-landing announcement i always tell the parents i'm like please make sure you tell your kids that they have to use bathroom it'll be like another 15 minutes before they can get up right have you landed with anybody in the bathroom no but i heard the story Mm -hmm. i have had people that we have landed and like run to the bathroom yeah there's like it's you know there's certain there's certain times where i would allow somebody to go to the bathroom when we landed because i get it I, i emergencies do happen yeah I get it. But if I, but if I see you and you're, you've been like sleeping or just sitting there watching whatever. And then as soon as we land, you get up to go to the bathroom. It's like you had three and a half hours to get up and use the lavatory and you're choosing this moment right now. Or like when they're sleeping and as soon as the seatbelt sign comes on, they get up to go to the bathroom. So what happens when you have somebody in the bathroom and it's time to land and they haven't come out yet? They have to stay in there. Yep. Because it's not safe for them to go back, especially when we're under 10,000 feet or like when the gear, when the landing gear comes down. At that moment, they're not going to make it to their seat. They're not going to. And they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt people around them. So it's safer for you to, to stay, stay in, the, in bathroom. the bathroom. Yeah, in the lavatory. So if you cannot come out, Stay there until we're completely stopped. Mm-hmm. Are there any kind of safety precautions for that? Do they have any kind of restraints in there that we don't normally see on the tiny little toilets that they have in airport lavatories or airplane lavatories, rather? The door. <laughs> <Just hang on. laughs> no, they, <laughs> there's there's uh, just handles. There's handles, but, but I mean, other than that, nothing. No. Just sit down on, you know, sit down on the toilet and hold for your life. So word to the wise people, don't go to the bathroom when you're on final approach. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Hold yeah. it until you cry yellow. <laughs> cry yellow. <laughs> or you decide to stand up and start going in the middle of your seat. <laughs> hey. Start slapping people. <laughs> So I was, uh, we were deplaning a while back. I think we were in Baltimore and this passenger ripped out a piece of a magazine and just handed it to us. <laughs> and so we're like, oh, what's going on? So this is from the Atlantic 
This is how we're going to conclude our episode because I think it's really cute. I'll post it on Instagram as well. It's from the Atlantic in the culture section, and it's an ode to flight attendants. They minister, they mollify, they bring us blankets. This is from the December 2020 issue. So it's a couple months old, but I think it's really nice. So it's, it's, uh, it's written by James Parker. It's time to be grateful for the courtesy, even when, especially when it is feigned or forced, for the big, brassy hellos as we all file onto the plane and the smaller lines around the ice goodbye as we file off again. Having gotten to know one another a little better, for the canned speeches over the in-flight PA, always somehow invested in a Philip of real feeling and the limp theater of the safety demonstration, the long suffering puff into the tiny tube of on the life jacket for the metallic backstage atmosphere of the galley where they sit with thrillingly off-duty faces next to plastic glasses of trembling cold water. In the air, they are charming threshold guardians. On the ground, they rush past us in a chatty flock while we, <laughs> while we stuck, while, we stu- we're, while we're stuck in a customs line. It's time to be grateful for flight attendants. I recently flew from Boston to London, the airport, the plane, and the flight attendants were, themselves were sorely afflicted with the virus of emptiness. The rituals were observed. The drinks trolley was trundled up and down the aisle. Sat snacks were handed out. But the interactions were masked, muffled, and the faces unreadable. None of those little flourishes or raised eyebrows. None of those soothing noises. We were strangers to each other. A great body of flight attendant knowledge of shrewdness and sympathy. Saucy recipients. Long acquaintance with every sort of passenger foot and aisle man sir talks a lot prince's wi-fi seemed to have been rendered inert it made me think about the exquisite management of expectations that goes up there about everything that flight attendants do to convince you in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary that you are having a faintly classy experience they minister they mollify they bring blankets they do the de-escalatory jiu-jitsu with alcoholics and exploding parents, and then they walk around with plastic bag collecting trash. Have I been a good passenger over the years? Not too needy, thankful when appropriate. There was the flight where I burst into tears with biological promptness every 20 minutes. The flight where I wore a jacket that stank so vengefully of car urine, of cat urine, that the man next to me asked me to change seats. The flight where Still days from a sleepless night in San Francisco, I looked out the golden loft space above the clouds and saw my whole life shining like the sun. At all times, I was managed discreetly, treated respectfully, and I hope I was respectful in return. Ever seen a flight attendant burst into tears or encountered one who smelled of a cat? It doesn't happen, and a shadowy time and a hooded time gave me the breastplate of professional cheeriness. Give me that shiny casting of industrialized hospitality and presentability. And if it's only an inch deep, all the more heroic. Isn't that nice? That is really it nice. It gave me goosebumps. Yeah, it does. It goosebumps? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It was yeah. really cute. I'll post the article on on. The I like Instagram. the part when we are rushing through the airport because it's so true. It is true. And speaking of rushing. We have to get going because we got to get ready. <laughs> Time for another flight. Another Another day, another flag. Let's go to Boston. Speaking of Boston, mm-hmm. we're going there. We are going there. It is interesting, though, that uh, there's that statement about uh, the impression of, of classiness 
uh, on an airplane. And, and I'm sure that comes from when flight first started, when commercial flight first started. It was a social event. It was kind of a big deal. And people would always dress up. Everybody, all the always. men, all the women were dresses. And that has severely changed for a lot of people over the years. Although there are some people that still insist if I'm on a plane, I have to dress nicely. I mean, before I was, I became a flight attendant, I had my travel outfit that matched my luggage. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, when we had to travel yeah, a lot. I had my blue luggage, and I had my black dress pants, my blue shirt, my white jacket. Yeah, I remember my mom had, uh, every luggage had to match. My mom would make a point of, like, buying new outfits for everybody. Mm-hmm. It was a whole event. It was a whole yeah. preparation. Yeah. People need to start like taking pride in when they travel and not just like when they travel, but of themselves. Oh yeah. You know, I wonder if that's tied in at all to what we were talking about earlier about uh, the uh, using the lowest cost for like the safety precautions or whatever. And, And the same is obviously true of the seats. The seats aren't comfortable like they were back then when commercial air flight first started. I wonder if if that has something to do with it simply because like myself, when I want to go get on a plane, not that I have in a while, I I always want to dress super casually just so I'm as comfortable as possible because I tend to find the the seats in coach and business class to be uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. I feel like it might have something to do with it. I also feel like it's just more of the culture now has been more relaxed. It's been more acceptable for people to like go out in their pajamas. After 9-11, that happened a lot, especially because of TSA. Mm. You had to undress and like take every single piece, seat, um, seat belt, <laughs> <laughs> your belt. You had to take your shoes off. So people started like, in order to ease that process, they started wearing flip-flops, pajama pants, because they wouldn't have to wear a belt. And Because I didn't. That's that's how I got to this point. Yeah? Yeah, because I do still doing it. Really? <laughs> Not anymore, but before I became a flight attendant, yeah, that's the way I was traveling after 9 11. Because mm. I hated that whole thing of taking my shoes off, belts. Well, for somebody who's been flying before we had known crew member, I always had to do that. Yeah. I had to go through regular TSA with all the rest of the passengers. To me, it's like when flight attendants complain now that oh, this airport doesn't have KCM. And I'm just like, oh. I remember when I had to go through TSA at every single airport. That's another, that could be another subject for another mm-hmm. episode because yeah. people don't know what KCM and what we have to go through yeah. process yeah. in order to Let's do that. have that privilege. Sounds good. All right, guys, that's it for us. We got to go do the flight attendant thing now for reals. Do the demo. Demo. <laughs> and I have to edit this podcast. thanks jeff thank you all right stay safe fly safe and remember wear your seatbelt look at you look at you bye everybody